Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Hello and welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Shira Cohn, and I'm here with Fred Amram, Professor Emeritus of Communication and Creativity at the University of Minnesota. He's joining me to discuss his new book, We're in America Now, A Survivor's Stories, published this year, 2016, by Holy Cow Press. Fred, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to have you here today. It's very exciting to be here. You've had wonderful guests and I'm honored to be one of them. Wonderful. Well, since you're the guest, let's get right down to it. Since this is a memoir, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your family and to what extent you see them as typical of German-Jewish families in the interwar period. I, th- I think that our family, in a sense, was typical. Um, there was a mother and a father. Uh, I always called my mother Mutti, which means mommy, uh, and papa. Uh, Mutti and papa had only one child. My mother regularly said, why would you bring another child into a world like this? Uh, Hitler became chancellor in January of 33. I was born in September of 1933. So I'm really, I got here. I got to Germany uh, just about the start of the Holocaust uh, and experienced uh, those early days. Uh, Our family was middle class. We had a large apartment on the fourth floor of a five-story apartment building. Uh, There was a little balcony. Uh, I experienced uh, a lot on that balcony. There are several stories that include uh, the balcony. Uh, the the first story uh, in the book is about my bris, my circumcision, uh, and there was a parade outside, and everyone rushed out. Uh, Uncle Max, who was a, a prankster, said he had arranged a parade for the birth of this baby boy. Um, 
of course, that would be unlikely to to have a parade for a Jewish kid. Uh, however, um, as we looked down, we saw a really long car in the parade, uh, and as the car came right under our balcony, all the people on the street shouted, Heil Hitler! Uh, and the troops then responded, Heil Hitler! And lo and behold, it was Hitler who had, in a sense, come to my circumcision, my breast. And as you mentioned, you um, were born in 1933, so you were really young, um, you know, and came of age during the earlier to mid-years of the Nazi regime. So I'm wondering when you first really sensed Nazism permeating your daily life. And um, since you mentioned your mother and father, did all members of your family perceive the threat similarly? No. My, my mother was panicky pretty much from the beginning. There were, there were so many signs. Uh, the, the J painted on, on windows of, uh, uh, of shop windows of Jewish-owned stores, uh, smashed glass looting of Jewish-owned stores. Um, my father was was more serene about the whole thing. This too shall pass, he kept saying. What do you think accounted for the differences in their reaction? There are different kinds of people. My, my mother, uh, all her life, was uh, a really nervous woman. Uh, my father was serene, hopeful. I, I called him the man of hope. He, uh, there are several stories about Papa, and he always saw the bright side uh, of everything. Uh, even when people in the United States, when we first got here and we were poor, uh, he always found the good things. Uh, Freddie, that's me. Freddie learned to speak English. Freddie got into a school. Uh, he got a job. Only in America, he would say. Only in America. He was always very positive, both in Germany, until, of course, in Germany, until uh, he uh, uh, he was taken in for slave labor. And I think then it became real for him. Uh, he, he then no longer had a choice to ignore. And you mentioned that you actually also went through a major turning point from childhood to adulthood at the age of six. Um, can you tell us a bit about what happened and why that was such a rupture in your understanding of yourself and your role within your family? The Gestapo came regularly to our apartment and to the apartments of, of other Jewish people. Sometimes men were hauled away. My father um, tended not to be home. Uh, apparently he had ways of knowing that the Gestapo was, was coming. Uh, but they came, and they would uh, search the house. Uh, one time they came to search for radios uh, and announced, Jews will not have radios. Um, and they would check. Uh, one day they came, and they found the room in which my father kept his textiles. My father was a textile salesman. Uh, he, uh, these were the days, of course, in the, in the 30s and uh, the, even the late 30s when uh, women made clothing for their families. They made shirts and skirts and, uh, 
and sheets, bed sheets and pillowcases, and he went around the suburbs of Hanover, Germany, uh, selling textiles. One day they came in and they found his room, and it was my favorite room because I got to see all these beautiful textiles and their many colors and shades, and he explained, properly explained to me uh, the, the, uh, the different weaves and why one fabric is better than another fabric. Uh, and uh, But when the Gestapo saw that, they made Muti and me stand in a corner. They had guns aimed at us, pistols. Uh, they called in other people, uh, other Gestapo men, who then came and emptied the room. And uh, yes, in that chapter, I describe how suddenly this colorful room became all white, and we cried. Uh, and then uh, the next time the Gestapo came, uh, I answered the door, and I stood in front of my mother rather than behind her, and I had the sense that I was, at age six, I was now the man of the house. So with this, your family immigrated within about two years of that incident. How and when did your family decide to emigrate, and what was that journey like, both leading up to the journey and then the journey itself? My... Um, my father had been taken into slave labor, and it was an unusual kind of setting. I've met other uh, people who have had a similar kind of experience. They were put to work, and they were told that if they don't come back the next day, that they would be shot and their, uh, their families would, would be uh, shot. Uh, and they witnessed where uh, some of the, the Jews on their work uh, groups uh, were indeed shot. So my father got to come home every evening uh, after I went to bed. He left before I got up. Uh, so it was like being in a concentration camp, except that he wasn't away. He was at this site uh, where he was uh, was in road construction. Um, my, my mother had a sister who had married a man in Amsterdam, Holland. And uh, Hanover is not far from the Dutch border. Um, one night, uh, we were all packed and walked to, uh, to the border. It, it's a fairly long trip. One could take a bus uh, part of the way. Uh, but then somehow we got across the border. We were in Holland. Uh, we got our way to Amsterdam. And we stayed for a while with my mother's sister until we gained acceptance in the United States. Now, you know that the hard part usually was not getting out of Germany. Uh, borders were porous. Um, the hard part was getting into another country. Right. And uh, Germany uh, and, and the United States uh, didn't want Jews, uh, didn't want Germans, didn't want foreigners. And so 
we were very lucky to meet the quota. There, there was a, a kind of a raffle, a lottery, I guess, and there were sponsors in the United States who worked with the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. Mm-hmm. And, and was it just the three of you who decided to immigrate at that point in time? How was, do you think that decision was made? I'm sorry, I didn't hear your question. How do you think that the decision was made for the three of you? Um, do you think that that's how your family approached it? Was there, um, did other family members try to leave at the same time? Most of my family never got to leave. Uh, they may not have had the option or the courage. Uh, the option, that is, we had a place to go that was within a reasonable distance. We could go to my mother's sister. Most family members didn't make it. Uh, Uncle Max had uh, emigrated a few months earlier when it was still possible to actually emigrate from uh, Germany to the United States, and he had met the quota as well. Um, Most members didn't make it at all. Mm -hmm. Including your mother's sister and her family, correct? Right, because at, at the time we were there, Holland was still a free country, but then in, was it 1941, uh, the uh, the uh, Germans parachuted into Holland and treated the, the Dutch Jews in the same way that they treated, uh, that they treated the Jews of any other country. Um, my mother's sister then, uh, and her baby, my, my only first cousin, uh, and her husband, uh, all three died in Auschwitz. My cousin, uh, my cousin was three and a half. And you're experiencing all of this as a child. Um, and so, as you noted earlier, you didn't necessarily know um, why you were at the time going over to Holland to visit uh, more than just visiting your relatives. Um, what was the journey as a child like to the United States? What do you remember about the period when you actually left Amsterdam to when you arrived in New York? Well, before I tell you about the trip on the boat, I should say that I was aware. Uh, I didn't understand it in the way that I understand it now, but I knew that, that the Nazis were bad people. They had treated us badly. They were, I'd had many experiences where I uh, was restricted in going to the park. I was not allowed to go to school. Uh, I knew that Jews were being badly treated. Mm -hmm. From Holland, um, we traveled to Belgium. And from Belgium, we were able to get a boat that came to the United States. The boat trip for most people was horrific. Uh, I gather everybody was seasick except me and some of the crew. And so the crew treated me wonderfully. They even gave me uh, a a toy truck, an army truck, a U.S. army truck. And so I got to um, walk around the boat, crawl around the boat with my little toy truck. And... and, uh, and play and win wars and do all kinds of fun things, or at least what was fun for me at the time. It was an exciting trip, albeit really long. I just heard yesterday that boats at the time 
were zigzagging uh, in order to avoid torpedoes, and so they weren't keeping a straight route. And it may be that that's why the trip took two weeks, and it did take two weeks, which is a long time in stormy seas. Quite. So when you landed in New York, what are some of the first sights and experiences you had of being, quote-unquote, American? In the book, uh, I talk about arriving in New York Harbor and, uh, and not knowing what to do. Of course, my father who had only a fourth-grade education, spoke no English, and I spoke no English. My mother, who had graduated high school, had studied some English in school, so she could read some of the signs, like exit. And so from the place where where we had to show our papers, uh, there was an exit sign, and people kept pointing to it, but the question was where to go. Uh, luckily, when we got out there, there was... Uh, a, a highest man, a Hebrew immigrant aid society man uh, with a sign that had our name on it. And he took us then uh, on a trolley in New York, took us to a hotel, a rather cheap hotel. I got to see grocery stores in the book. I describe how this, I had never seen so much food because they're past grocery stores that displayed their wares out on the street and, and there were apples and peaches and pears and and I saw hot dog stands although I didn't know what hot dog meant <laughs> had I known I would have translated it literally uh, and, and, and so uh, it was a pretty scary experience uh, pretty exciting. We shared a room then for a couple of weeks until uh, the highest placed us with some other German family, German-Jewish family that had emigrated uh, significantly earlier. Ultimately, uh, my father got a job in a bakery, and they really liked him. He worked hard. Uh, and they, the bakery owned a tenement that was right next door to the bakery. And they needed a janitor. And they asked, would he like to be the janitor as well as work in the bakery? Well, of course, being the janitor meant free rent. And so here he had a job and he had free rent. Uh, and while it was a fairly ugly place to live, in the sense that there were cockroaches by the millions, literally. Uh, it always smelled good because there were always fresh rolls and fresh bread. And there's a good deal of description of, of adventures we had there, living on the east side of New York, next door to the bakery. So your father was able to find some form of employment, perhaps not in his original type of position upon arrival, um, and as you mentioned earlier, he was sort of a very optimistic personality. Did your mother experience the transition to America in the same way? How was it for her? Well, she found work first. She worked in a, in a flower factory, artificial flowers, uh, and she, make, she had to make flowers. Uh, my mother perceived herself as a princess, a lady. Um, she hated going to work. She didn't think that uh, women should work, and certainly she shouldn't work. Um, she liked to grow her fingernails long. Uh, 
and uh, and it was harsh for her, from her perception, to have to work and to live in in a setting that wasn't very elegant at all. Uh, was in some sense not even clean, not sanitary, what with all the cockroaches. Um, she was extraordinarily unhappy. Yeah, and much of the book describes the difference of in attitude and explores the immigrant experience generally. Uh, here in Minnesota, where I live, we have a lot of Somali immigrants the United States has currently experienced a, a lot of immigrants, and the immigrant experience can be harsh. We were refugees, which is different from being an immigrant in the sense that we were not here voluntarily deciding we wanted a better life. Um, we were here running for our lives. And refugees have an even harder time adjusting, and so much of the book shows how with an appropriate mindset, like my father's, um, one can manage, albeit one still has to learn a new language and a new culture. And the culture, learning the new culture is more difficult than learning the new language. Um, being bitter about the whole thing uh, is, uh, uh, makes it even harder. Uh, my mother resented the Nazis constantly, resented being poor, resented, just resented. Uh, and there are examples in the books of, again and again, my mother being unhappy. I mean, you mentioned um, how difficult it is for an immigrant, especially a refugee, to transition to a new environment. What was that like for you, especially, you know, school and education is really thought of and held up to be um, the equalizing factor for children, right? That you go there and that's one way to, quote unquote, become an American. What was school like for you? I wasn't an, an American in the sense that I didn't speak English. When I did speak English, I was an excellent student and so picked up the language fairly quickly. I had an accent. Uh, kids teased me for, uh, for speaking poorly and then for having an accent. But I was an outsider for other reasons as well. Uh, unusual for New York City, in my particular public school, grade school, uh, I was the only Jewish kid, and so I was the dirty Jew, and here I had come from Nazi Germany to New York City, and I was still a dirty Jew, albeit it wasn't as bad as, as there was no threat of concentration camps or such, but I was still constantly in fights. But not only was I the dirty Jew, but because we were by then at war with Germany, um... I was also a dirty hun, uh, whatever that means. Uh, but I got beat up because I was German, and I was beat up because I was Jewish, and uh, and occasionally had to fight. And there are some stories in the first half of the book of my uh, of my fighting, in a sense, fighting for my life and or my dignity. But the anti-Semitism 
pervades throughout the book because the United States really was quite anti-Semitic um, right through the 40s. Um, well into the middle 50s, there was anti-Semitism uh, throughout the United States that was huge. Um, there's one story that uh, describes my father and me going to a uh, uh, on a vacation uh, just before my bar mitzvah, before I was 13. Um, and the clerk, when we tr went to register in the Poconos and rest in a resort, uh, the clerk said, I'm sorry, sir, we don't accept dogs or Jews. And it's quite a story. In Can you tell us what happened? Well, <laughs> sure. Uh, in the... Uh, the clerk said, we don't accept dogs or Jews. And my father looked to the right, and he looked to the left, and he said, Jews, Jews, where are Jews? And the clerk apologized. The clerk, the clerk didn't understand that my father was acting. I understood what he was doing. He certainly looked Jewish, and he certainly had an accent. Uh, he was obviously foreign. But the clerk apologized. The clerk then continues to talk about how bad the Jews are and how he can smell a Jew uh, a mile away and how Jews cheat and control the banks and the general mythology that goes with anti-Semitism. Uh, and, uh, and eventually, uh, my father grabs the clerk's arm, holds him close, and says... Uh, I guess you can't smell a Jew a mile away. My my boy and I really are Jewish and set some conditions of how he wanted repayment for uh, his deposit as well as the taxi ride, the bus ride and the train ride uh, and, uh, and compensation for his hardship. And uh, otherwise he threatened to make a to-do here in the lobby. Uh, and there were people by now who were behind us in line. And so he, rather than have it to do in the lobby of this resort, uh, some senior person was called and they gave my father a check and we went home. Uh, interestingly, uh, on the way out, I had told my father about... Um, radio programs that I had heard about the Lone Ranger. I really liked listening to the radio. Uh, and, uh, and mm -hmm. You have sirens there. And, and uh, I told him about the, had told him about the Lone Ranger, and on the way home, my father said, you know, uh, this resort wouldn't have liked to have Tonto there either. A nice window into your father's personality. Yes, yeah. yeah. You write yeah. towards the end of the book that you think your experience has led you to become a social justice advocate, and I'm wondering if you can say a bit more about that connection. Yeah, and this this doesn't impact all refugees in the same way, but somehow, all of my life, even when I was still a boy. I had a sense that it was my responsibility to 
to say never again and to assure that no people, not Jews, not any other people, uh, should be allowed to be discriminated against in any way at any time. And so I uh, began political activities. I was 14 when I was a junior delegate to the Henry Wallace campaign in 1948. Uh, Henry Wallace had been Roosevelt's vice president and then ran for president in, in the 48 election. Um, I, I believed in Henry Wallace wholly. Uh, there was some, there's a great deal of discrimination uh, in our neighborhood against uh, uh, African Americans. And uh, and I stood on picket lines when I was a teenager. Um, in 1968, I became a delegate to the Democratic National Convention uh, on behalf of Eugene McCarthy, who was um, fighting for civil rights, peace. Um, so I, I spent the bulk of my life, I spent a lot of my working life, in fact, in anti-poverty programs uh, while I was a professor at the University of Minnesota. For a, a good decade, I was director of the anti-poverty program. Um, I like to joke that I was a general in the war on poverty. Please, General. Uh, Lyndon Johnson's war on poverty. Uh, I, um, while I don't like the phrase, uh, to this day I, I'm appalled by by settings where people experience discrimination, and I am appalled by people who become bystanders who just sit around and don't care and don't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. What inspired you to write your memoir at this point in time? Uh, I think I had the time. I had never, unlike That's some... That's fair. <laughs> yeah, unlike some Holocaust survivors who who don't tell their story to their children, I always told the story to my children and my children's children, and uh, they grew up knowing what happened, and I encouraged their, their awareness as well as their social consciousness. Uh, I had never written it down. After I retired, I, I had many, many invitations to do speaking engagements, particularly in schools. And I talked to uh, um, largely eighth graders, although anywhere from fourth grade to, uh, to senior citizens. I talked about my experiences in the context of genocide everywhere, even now. And uh, people said, you, know, you should write it down. And so I wrote a couple of stories. And the stories individually were apparently pretty good because they were published. And uh, after 10 stories were published, uh, I thought, gee, let's make it into a book. And it's now a whole book that tells a piece of my life. People ask me, is there whole life? And... Uh, and I have to say, it isn't. There are still parts that are missing, and that'll be the second or third or fourth memoir. Oh, so I was going to ask you, you know, since you're certainly entitled to a retirement, but if you have more writing in mind. I do have more writing in mind. I have finished the first draft of 
a novel. My history of writing, my first book was a textbook. Uh, then I wrote two scholarly books. And then I wrote a memoir for someone else, an as-told-to story. Mm -hmm. And I wrote my memoir. And my dream has been to write fiction. And so I've now finished the first draft of a novel. And uh, I'd like to build on that. I'd like to, I'm working on the second draft. Uh, I'm hoping ultimately it will be good enough for publication and you'll invite me again to talk about my novel. That would be lovely. Fred, thanks again for being on the show today. Again, listeners, check out Fred Amram's memoir, We're in America Now, A Survivor's Stories, published in 2016 by Holy Cow Press. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we will see you next time. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.